Open your Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 4. Second message in a series entitled Ecclesia. The word Ecclesia means church. Church, what's it literally mean? Called out ones. Yeah, the Greek word there is kaleo. You don't have to know that, but kaleo is the word for call. Ecclesia is the word for church. It means called out ones. This morning I gave you a definition for church. What's the definition? Anybody remember it? Boy, you'd be the preacher's pet star pupil if you could remember that. The church is the people called out by God. Yeah, notice the trinities involved here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The church is the people called out by God, transformed through Christ, and then Possessed by the Holy Spirit to praise and glorify Him forever. Now that's what the church is. It's the people. You've always known that. Here's the church. Here's the people. It, it, it's the game we played as children. The church is people. It's about people. I love the book of Acts because Acts is, of course, the acts of the apostles or sometimes we say the acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the church. But the book of Acts is all about the earliest church. And honestly, it's kind of like a family album. You start looking through the book of Acts and you should recognize the church. It's, it's us and you should look for some sort of resemblance between what we do and, and what they were doing. One of the things you notice when you read through Scripture, not just Acts, when you read the New Testament, there are a lot of stories about church, and I love church stories. As you know, I've grown up in church. I could spend all night long just telling you church stories. We've got great church stories at Woodburn Baptist Church. 140-something years of being the church, we've had hilarious things, great things happen, and the stories are great. I love the story about when Gertrude Barker in the old building was sitting about midways, and our, our floor was hardwood and slanted and she had one of those really fancy pop bead necklaces and the string broke and all those beads hit the floor and rolled down they bounced and rolled all the way down and lined up down at the foot of the steps man i love that i just love that i love all of the times in the old church uh, when people would go to the bathroom because the bathroom was like right there it it was built on in 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 the late 60s and that bathroom was right there and there were kids who go to the bathroom and then scream out mama i'm through i I just love that you just got to understand what it was like. I love the church stories. When we tell church stories, we tend to tell stories about what happens in church. In church. That's how we think. But I want you to understand that in Scripture, in the book of Acts especially, we have very few stories that happened in church. Not very many. There's one great one, and I'm sure it's included because it's so good. It's about a Sunday evening service when Paul preached on and on and on. You know the story? And there was a young man whose name was Eutychus. Eutychus, Eutychus, and he got really, really sleepy, and he sat up in a windowsill, and this was a second-story room. He sat up in the window, and, and what happened? He fell asleep. Paul preached on, and he fell asleep, and fell out of the window and died. He fell out of the window and died. So what happened? Great church story. What happened? Paul went down, brought him back from the dead, and then went back up and started preaching again. That's just hilarious. I promise you, if I preach and one of you dies, I just will not even finish the sermon. So don't fake it. Don't use that against me. But I just can't imagine, you've preached so long that people fall asleep and die, and then you come back and finish your sermon. That, that's just priceless. It's one of those stories. But honestly, that's a rare story. In the New Testament, it's rare that we get a picture or any kind of description of what happens in church. All of the great stories about the church are stories about the church in the world. 
Now, do you understand the difference? The great stories we have in Scripture are not great stories about what happened when they all got together, and we know they did that all the time, but the great stories we have are stories about what happens when they go out in the world. I'm afraid that as a church we think way too much about what happens when we're all together. We forget that we only come together so that we can go out into the world, and that's where the real things happen. That's where we really are the church. Uh, Acts chapter 4 tonight is where we'll be. If you're uh, faithful on Wednesday nights, uh, we preach the, the story that comes right before this. Uh, and, uh, and we're going to pick up right here, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. All you need to know, we're going to pick up in the middle of a big story, but all you need to know is Peter and John have healed a crippled beggar that lay outside the temple forever. He's been out there, and everybody knew him, and everybody knew he was crippled, and Peter and John healed the lame man. Now he is he's walking, running, leaping through the temple, and everybody knows he's been crippled. Everybody has known and seen him laying there for years. And suddenly this man who had uh, legs that did not work is now dancing and leaping. It's drawn a crowd. And so as the crowd begins to gather, Peter and John begin to explain what has happened, how this has happened. And of course, that leads to a sermon about Jesus. And we're going to pick up Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this and look for a resemblance uh, in the family album here. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not even counting women and children. It's amazing. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Okay, that's the big question. Underline that. By what power or in whose name have you done this? Done what? Healed the man. Yeah, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Awesome. That's so good. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's a huge verse. Underline that. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Members of the council were amazed when they saw the Boldness, underline that word. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, okay, they saw the man standing there among them. What's interesting? He had been crippled. For 40 years, he's standing there. There was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. 
We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let him go because they didn't know how to punish him without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. These priests, the, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, they have a real interest here in somehow squashing the whole Jesus thing. Now, what is their interest? What is their involvement here? Why are they so concerned that the name of Jesus not continue to become uh, famous? Why are they so concerned that, that the whole Jesus movement be completely squashed? What is their interest They crucified him. Don't forget that. They crucified him, and not very long ago, we're talking about the same religious leaders, the same priests. They crucified him. They crucified him for whatever reasons, and there were probably a number of reasons, but they crucified him, and now they do not want to continue to hear about him and see his movement continue to advance. So what's so scandalous about the message? He's dead. According to the religious leaders, the Sadducees, this is a man that was crucified. Some of his followers are now saying he's risen from the dead. But my goodness, what's so scandalous about what they're preaching? Absolutely, absolutely. Frank's right on it. Verse 12, what does it say? This is the scandal. If they would leave out this part, honestly, if we would leave out this part... The whole world would welcome our preaching. If we would just leave out this part, there is salvation in no one else. That is the scandal of the gospel right there. If we would just not say that, if we would say like everybody else says that, that everybody is on the same road and, and all roads lead to the same place and, and whatever you believe, it's going to be fine as long as you're sincere. I mean, if everybody preached what Oprah preaches, we'd all be famous and we'd all be popular. Do you understand? Because the message that the world loves is that message that whatever you believe, it's okay. Whatever religion you choose, if you just follow it with all of your heart, you're going to end up with God in heaven. But that is not the Christian message, and this is what sets us apart. We do proclaim an exclusive gospel. There is salvation in no one else. Well, well, Brother Tim, I, I, I think if you're a good Hindu, then, then surely God's going God's to accept you. If you're good, or a good Buddhist, you know, just whatever you believe, whatever you believe. Do you know anything about Hinduism? H- have you really studied any of the other religions? Do you know anything about Buddhism? Do you understand that, that Buddhism, just for an example, is an atheistic religion? There is no God in Buddhism. So when people say, oh, they're all more or less the same, no, they're not. 
They're not more or less the same. World religions are radically different from one another. Some of our moral teachings become very much the same, but we're not the same. We're not saying the same things, and we do not proclaim the same way of salvation. Not at all. And the scandal of the Christian message is that there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a scandalous message. But it goes back to what we preached this morning, to God's great plan. God does plan to bring the whole world into perfect harmony. And yes, all of the religions are interested in perfect harmony. But understand, God's plan was to bring everything into harmony by one name, by one way. And that name is Jesus That was God's plan, to bring everything together, everything into harmony through Jesus. Only one way, only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's one question, the one question that the rulers demand an answer to. It's in verse 7. What is their question? In the verse 7. This is what their trial is about. By what power or in whose name have you done this? By by what power have you healed this crippled man? It's an amazing miracle. And there's no explanation for it. This man has laid there for over 40 years. You understand that? Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this man was already crippled and laying there at the temple. Do you understand that? And Jesus lived his whole life, 30, 33 years. He lived his whole life, and that man laid there on his mat at the temple crippled. Everybody knew this man. Everybody saw this man every day. He laid at the temple crippled for over 40 years. And then all of a sudden, one day, because of an exchange with Peter and John, this crippled man gets up and walks. And there is no explanation for it. And that's what's bugging them. That's what's bugging them. If they could explain it, if they had some sort of rationalization for what everybody can plainly see, but they have no explanation. And this is what's bugging the leaders. This is what the whole issue is. By what power did you do this? How do you explain what you've done? By what power, in whose name, have you healed a crippled man? That's an amazing, absolutely amazing question because there is only one answer. It's the answer that they do not want to hear, but it's the only truthful answer. It's by the power and in the name of Jesus, the one you crucified, but God raised him from the dead. Now that's power. That's power. And this is what draws the leaders to them. This is the burning question. Where does this power come from? It's also a question that burns us, and I alluded to this this morning. Because honestly, if this is supposed to be something of a family album, if this is what the church looks like, I'm just not so sure that the same question gets raised very much when people look at our lives and our church. By what power do you do these things? I'm just not so sure that that there's all that much that happens in our lives that would demand some sort of explanation. Our lives are very, very explainable. You know what I'm saying? Our church, very, very explainable. 
people look at, at what we do and what we accomplish and there's always an explanation. And it's a good earthly explanation. I mean, I'm not trying to say that we don't accomplish anything by God's power. I'm just saying that this same question doesn't come up very often with us in the world. By what power? How do you explain this? And I think that's an indictment against the church these days. It's an indictment. Because we don't attempt things. We don't even try things that would require God's power. Uh, honestly, if, if we can't figure out a way to do it ourselves, we just change the plan. We very, very seldom attempt something that God would have to get, uh, get his power into, that God would have to intervene in order for us to be successful. We don't think like that very often. And so therefore, we don't attempt anything that would require God's power. And therefore, we don't accomplish anything that would demand an explanation from the world. But by what power did you do this? In whose name? It's the question that demands an explanation. When the church is doing God's will by God's power, I'm telling you the world will begin to ask that question again. By what power? How did you accomplish this? As God's church, as Woodburn Baptist Church, I just want to challenge you and beg you and ask you to beg me so that we can begin to dream dreams that, that, that would be large. The kinds of things that only we could accomplish if, if God wants us to accomplish it. The kinds of things that we would fail if God didn't show up and show up in power. Because this is what the early church did. All the great stories are stories about what happens when they go out in the power of God and do the things God's called them to do. By what power, in whose name have you done this? It's it's the burning question. So they get together, the rulers, the, the court gets together. They send the apostles out because they're really in a dilemma. They realize that that if they punish these men, they can't really do that without causing a riot because everybody knows, everybody knows that the only thing Peter and John have done is a good deed for a crippled man. If Peter and John are now punished, there's going to be a riot. The whole city's going to explode because you cannot punish people for doing something so good. So they reach a compromise. They decide simply to issue an order from the court. And they command Peter and John to do only one thing. What's that one thing? Just stop talking about Jesus. If you want to continue healing crippled people, you just go for that. But, but just don't, don't say Jesus' name when you do it. Whatever you want to do out there, okay, just, you just go right on. You just have at it. But just, just don't preach Jesus' name anymore. Don't say Jesus' name. And Peter and John say in the most amazing way, That silence is not an option for them. We cannot help but talk about the things that we have seen and heard. We can't not talk about Jesus. There's no way that we can be silent. It's not even an option for us, they say. So I guess the real question for you and me tonight is if Peter and John were Christians like we're Christians, and if they had the Holy Spirit like we have the Holy Spirit, and they had seen and heard things from Jesus like we have seen and heard things from Jesus, how is it that for them silence was not an option, but for you and me in our lives, why is silence such an option? I just wonder how many of us, and I wouldn't even ask you to show hands, but how many of us have actually said the name of Jesus in the world in the past week or two weeks or a month or maybe the last 10 years? Does this characterize your life? Are you one of those people who just can't not talk about Jesus? 
He should be on your tongue, on your lips all the time. Haven't you seen and heard something to talk about? But honestly, in the world these days, it's just hard to find anybody, any Christians who are bold enough to speak his name. And this is a real problem. It is the primary way that the devil has tied the church up in knots because he's managed to silence us. Again, it doesn't really matter what the church does as long as they don't do it in the name of Jesus, as long as they don't explain where the power comes from, as long as they don't tell anybody who the way of salvation is. The devil is content to let you go on your way as long as you don't talk about Jesus. But if you talk about Jesus, we're unstoppable, unstoppable. So why won't you talk about him? What's keeping you so silent? Two deacons, not our deacons, two deacons were taking the church van for gasoline. Marty and Jeff, their names. Went into the Minute Mart, filled the gas tank up and went in to pay. Both men went in. There was one lady, only one lady in the whole place and she was the one behind the cash register. And it was obvious that she had been crying. And so Marty was was the deacon up front. He was handing her the money. When he handed her the money, he said, ma'am, Has anybody told you today that Jesus loves you? And she said, no, nobody's ever said that to me. And the minute Marty said that, has anybody told you that Jesus loves you? Jeff ran out the door and got in the church van, just busted out and got in the van. Well, Marty stayed right there and he talked to this lady about the Lord. Her heart was broken and her heart was open. And he just explained to her the love of Christ Took his time because there was nobody in that store. And then he went back and got in a church van with the other deacon. His name was Jeff. And he's sitting there, and Jeff was sitting with his arms crossed like this. He was mad, mad. Marty said, Jeff, you okay? Jeff said, don't you ever do that to me again. Marty said, what are you talking about? I tell you, these are both deacons. Marty said, what are you talking about? He said, witnessing to people, don't ever do that to me again. Did you see how embarrassed that lady was? You embarrassed her. Marty said, Jeff, it looks like the only person I embarrassed was you. That woman wanted to hear about Jesus. And after you left, we talked about Jesus. And I told her about the love of Jesus. And that woman prayed and accepted Christ right there in that store. Come back in there and meet her. And he did. Took Jeff back in that minute mark, stood there, and that woman was radiant. Radiant. Because she came to know Jesus. Don't ever do that to me again. That's what Jeff says. Don't ever do that to me again. You embarrassed her? No. The only person embarrassed was the Christian. Why are you embarrassed? Why would you possibly be embarrassed to tell people about Jesus? That is the devil's lie. It's the devil's way of tying you up in knots so that you don't say anything about what you've seen and heard. How dare you not talk about him in a world that needs to know about him? You're thinking that the kids at school don't want to hear it? You're crazy. They want to hear. They're dying to hear. At one point in my college days, I lived in a shed, a literal shed. I mean, it was a real shed. There was room barely for a bed and a commode. And this is a tiny place. It was owned by one of my professors who was not a Christian. I loved her, but she was not a Christian. She and her husband both were professors, really, really smart people. 
And they knew that I was, a, I was your youth minister in those days. They knew that I was a minister. And she always thought it was kind of, kind of quaint that I was religious and that I was a Christian. But I always got this impression from her. I always believed that she thought I was dumb and stupid and naive for believing in Christ. This was a professor who openly in the class mocked Christ at times. I was convinced that I would never, ever be able to share Christ with her. I was scared of her. I was embarrassed. But there was this one night when I came in to hand her the rent check and somehow it just opened up. Somehow she asked a question and I just started talking about what Jesus means to me. The whole time I was talking, my voice was trembling. I was shaky. I just really couldn't believe that she was listening. Couldn't believe that she would listen. About that time, her husband came in, and I thought, oh my goodness, now I'm sunk, now it's over. But she said, Tom, come in, come in quick. Tim's talking about Christ. And they both sat down and just listened to me. You see, I had always thought they would never listen to me. I had always thought that they would never be interested. They were interested. If I had never shared with them, I would be making the choice, not them. I would be making the choice that they don't hear about Jesus. And that's not my choice to make. It's not your choice. If you do not tell the other kids at school about Jesus, you're making the choice that they don't hear. And that's not your choice to make. Your family members, your coworkers, you don't speak. You're making the choice for them that they don't hear about Jesus. And that is not your place. At least share. If they choose not to listen, then that is their choice. That's their freedom. But you do not make the choice for them. You share. You speak. You've known Jesus. You've seen Jesus. You know what you need to say. So say it. The world is dying to hear. It's the devil's lie that they don't want to listen. Some will listen. Some won't. But it's not your choice. If you don't speak, you're choosing that nobody hears. You understand that? You're choosing that nobody hears. I know it's scary. There was a woman named Angel who really, really wanted to talk about Christ, but she never could. And she had a friend named Sharon who was lost, just as lost as anybody could possibly be. Sharon knew nothing about the Lord. Sharon and Angel worked together. And every now and then, Sharon would ask a question. She would literally ask a question of Angel. And Angel was a Christian. And Angel always prayed, God, give me boldness. Give me words. Help me to be a witness. But every time that Sharon would ask a question, Angel would just go, uh, uh, uh. I mean, she just got tongue-tied and stuck. She could never say anything. Not anything. One day, Sharon came in and said, Angel, I know that you're a Christian. I hear people talking about God speaking to them. Does God speak to you? How does God speak to you? And Angel just said, uh, uh, the Bible, uh, uh, prayer, uh, uh, and she just always felt like such a failure, always felt like a failure. She never had words, just a lot of, uh, well, listen. Her coworker Sharon came to Christ. And when she came to Christ, she came back to Angel and said, Angel, I just want you to know that I've become a new believer. And a whole lot of it is thanks to you. Because every time I asked you a question, you knew exactly what to say. Everybody else would just go on and on and they'd tell me way too much. But you always just told me just enough. Isn't that awesome? 
You can do this. You've got to do this. You've just got to talk about him. Because if we don't talk about Jesus in the world, we're not being the church. We're not doing God's work in the world. Because God's work, God's plan is all about bringing everything into harmony in the name of Jesus. If you won't say the name of Jesus, then you can't be a part of what God wants to do. I want to show you one thing, and this is an absolutely amazing thing. Amazing thing in the way this story ends. Look at verse 29. I've not read this verse for you yet. This is just amazing. See, understand, understand this whole context. This is really the first story we have after Pentecost. The very first story after the the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. It's the first story we get, Peter and John healing this crippled beggar. And then everything that happens next. I want you to see this. If there's such a thing as a dangerous prayer, this is it. And this is what they pray. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, O Lord... Hear their threats. Whose threats? The rulers, the religious leaders, the ones who are threatening them in prison now. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That wouldn't have been our prayer. I know us. That wouldn't have been our prayer. The moment they faced opposition, what did they pray? God, make us bold. I don't know if we would have prayed that. What would we have prayed? Oh, God, make them stop. Make them stop. Make them leave us alone. God must be closing the door. No, no, no. We would be praying, God, make them stop. But they instead pray, God... You make us bold. You make us bold in sharing the name of Jesus. And then, God, you give power. You give great power. Do you understand what they pray for? Do you understand how this works? We pray for boldness and we pray for power. And this is the principle. When we speak out in boldness, God shows up in power. When we act and speak in boldness, God shows up in in power. This is where the church is born, brothers and sisters. This is how it starts. With this audacious, dangerous prayer, God, just make us bold. Make us stupid bold. Make us so brave and bold that we would charge the gates of hell to say the name of Jesus one more time before they kill us. That is the spirit of the early church. Make us bold. No talk of making them stop. No talk of making it easier. Just prayer that they would be bolder, bolder. They began to show up in boldness. God began to show up in power. The church moves on. It would be nice to see God show up in power around here. It will happen when the church begins to show up in boldness around here. We cannot help but speak about the things that we have seen and heard, Peter and John said. Oh, God, make us bold. Make us that bold.
Pray with me. God, I had neighbors who I knew ran a meth lab. I knew that about them. They may not have known that I was a pastor. God, help me. Make us bold. God, make us bold at school. Help us not to be afraid of what other kids would say or not say. Help us not to be concerned about our popularity on earth, Lord. Help us to be more concerned about our reputation in heaven. Oh, God, make us bold. Help us to show up at work tomorrow in boldness. Help us, Lord, to be so very sensitive and so very gentle, but so very bold when we have an opportunity to say your name, to tell others about what we've seen and heard of your gospel. Oh, God, we are so fearful and so embarrassed. But God, truly, truly, Lord, you have said that those who are ashamed of you on earth among sinners, Lord, you will be ashamed of us when we stand before you. God, let us not make you ashamed. Make us bold. Oh, God, we don't always know what to do. We don't know how to say it. We don't even know where to start. But God, let us start tonight with this dangerous, audacious prayer. Oh, God. Let us show up in the world with boldness tomorrow. And then, God, you show up with power. And let us do your work. Let us, your church, do your work in the world. God, help us not to worry about the stories we can tell about what happens in this room. But, Lord, when we come back next week, help us to have stories about what's happened all week long when we showed up with boldness and you showed up with power. Oh, God, let all the great stories that happen around us, Lord, happen in your name out there with the world that needs to know the Savior. Lord Jesus, let us see something tonight. Let us hear something tonight so that tomorrow we've got something to say. In Jesus' name, amen.